Welcome to the Fundamental Baptist Podcast. There are many types of Baptists, but being a Baptist once meant that you were a fundamentalist. Over the years, many Baptists have strayed from the fundamentals and thus attacked those who remain true to the faith. This podcast will address the issues surrounding what it means to be a fundamental Baptist. Somebody said, Brother House, fundamentalists are changing, aren't they? No, fundamentalists don't change. Folks quit being fundamentalists. God says when the troubles come, he said, fight. You can't fight. He said, withstand. You can't withstand. He said, stand. What does it mean to stand? He said, don't change. What? Don't change what? Number one, don't change what you believe. Here we will reason concerning the scriptures about the doctrines we hold dear. We believe in souls being saved, lives being changed, and Bible doctrines being strengthened by the Word of God. We believe in the local church, soul winning, missions, and everything taught in the King James Bible. I thank God tonight for this wonderful Bible. You know, I I thank God it's a perfect book, and I, I love the Bible. Doesn't need any addition, no correction, nothing taken from it. Thank God tonight for the Holy Bible. I like it just like it is. We are not ashamed of being fundamental Baptists, and we want to encourage others to remain true to the Bible, their Baptist heritage, and to not change what they have been given. You just stick with the book. You can't beat this book. Why does every generation feel that we've got to change it just a little bit because our daddy did it as I said, and our granddaddy did it like that, and let's change it just a little bit. You change it, and things that are different are not the same. The same commit thou to faithful men. Thank you for joining us in our discussion of what it means to be a fundamental Baptist. Hello and welcome. Welcome to the Fundamental Baptist Podcast. My name is David Baker, your host, and I have my uh, second oldest son, Jonathan, here. Jonathan, how are you? I'm doing well. Now, what color is that jacket now? We got this Valentine's things coming up. Uh, I don't know if you can see it on the video, but what color is that jacket? I've got a pink tux on. Whoa, a pink tux on. So uh, it is a light pink. Um, I talked about this um, not too long ago. But it's amazing how many people make an issue of that, uh, of colors, where the Bible didn't and uh, my pastor didn't. Uh, Dr. Howells wrote somewhere, he said, were you guys preaching against uh, wearing different colors, colored shirts? He goes, when I was a young preacher, he said, we preached against white shirts. We called them lingerie. And uh, he said, everyone wore colored shirts. He goes, China Rice wore pink shirts all the time. So we don't make an issue out of it because the Bible doesn't, but some people do. And uh, my son, Jonathan's brother, Grant, you got to meet Grant sometime. Uh, he's um, a character. Uh, he was at a teen conference and they preached against pink. We got on a pink shirt. So he went uh, up to the preachers afterwards and said, hey, would you sign my tie? So he's got all the guest preacher signatures on his pink tie. So, um, so um, anyway, I don't know where they get that, you know, attitude from, Jonathan. I don't know where that comes from. But uh, anyway, so um, yeah. And by the way, we care about what God says, obviously, but what people say, ah, it doesn't, doesn't, really, doesn't really matter. So, um, so welcome. All right, we are into point number four called Irresistible Grace. So we did one podcast where it was why we disagree with all five points. Then we're, we're doing one on each point, but we had to do two on uh, one because there was so much information on it. This should just be one, but uh, Irresistible Grace. So uh, Jonathan, how do they explain that? Uh, Mr. R.C. Sproul, who was, uh, quote, like the expert in this, uh, we start off, 
with his teaching to make sure we understand what they're saying. Many times people will take us and say, see, they're misrepresenting us. And we don't want to do that. So we're getting it from the expert. So uh, what does he say? And he changes every one of these acrostics, the tulip. He changes every one. He doesn't like exactly what it said, so he changed it. Go ahead, Jonathan. Right. So it says irresistible grace, which it can... Uh, be misleading according to them, so they change it to effectual grace. Uh, effectual grace is the doctrine that the Holy Spirit of God must sovereignly apply the work of salvation to the individual. The doctrine is so closely tied with the doctrine of total depravity. If a man is unwilling and unable by his own free will to believe the gospel, then God must work the faith, work faith in the hearts of his elect people by the power of his spirit. And so we also believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. We believe that we're saved by grace. Um, so we don't get that twisted and, and make it sound like that we don't think the Holy Spirit is necessary because it is. But when is the Holy Spirit necessary? They believe that the Holy Spirit must give saving grace before someone ever has faith, meaning God works in the heart or has to, must sovereignly work in the heart of an individual in order for them to even want or desire God. So this happens to them before they have any inclination or, or any desire for God. God changes their heart, whether you say against their will or, or according to their will, but he basically changes their heart so that they will turn to God. And that is what they mean by effectual grace, that it is effective on the elect only, because that is the people. He's not, he's not giving this grace to everyone. This is for the elect. This effectual grace uh, is only for the elect, and God will change their heart, uh, in my opinion, um, even against their will. Uh, um, I heard an example for this, kind of put it into um, a scenario that maybe we can understand a, a little better. Uh, a guy said, uh, if I have a very unruly child and I, I can't get him to listen, obey anything, and so in his food I start giving him a drug that makes him docile and obedient and he wants to obey me now and I don't have any problems anymore. Did he choose to start obeying or did I manipulate him? And I think that closely parallels, of course, every uh, analogy is going to fall short in some way, but if you can understand, changing somebody's will without them having any inclination, that doesn't seem like we are choosing to love God, uh, like so many examples in the Bible show. So, yeah, so they get pushed back because when the term irresistible grace means it's irresistible, this just comes on me and I have no control. And so people like us would preach against them saying they believe that God is going to make you get saved, kicking and screaming, going against your will. Um, they say, no, 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 we don't believe that. And we're misrepresenting it by saying that way. That's why they don't want to use irresistible and they want to use effectual. So this effectual grace will have the effect on us that they want it to have and that someone will be saved. And so they're saying that God comes in first and changes them. But when they're saying this effectual grace, they don't want irresistible because then what we say is that we they are making people get saved 
against their will. It's irresistible. We're being drawn and we can't even, someone doesn't want to be saved, uh, God's going to make them be saved. They don't like that. They want to say effectual, that God's grace is having the effect on us that God wants, which is still irresistible. Uh, And they say someone can resist some, but eventually the grace will have the effect that God wants. It's going to break them down and still irresistibly make them get saved. One of the things to me that was amazing, and I want to definitely push back on it, but they said that regeneration precedes faith. Regeneration precedes faith. Regeneration, that's a regene. That's the born again precedes faith. The faith comes after that. Um, but the Bible says very simply, um, Romans 12, verse 3, um, it says, For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. God gives every man a measure of faith then we decide where we put that faith in. If we put the faith in the Nile River, then God is not obligated to give us any more faith, any more understanding. Um, if God, if we put this uh, faith into a rock that we built, an altar or a God that we made, God is not obligated to give us any more faith. He gave us a measure of faith and we put it in something human or man-made uh, or some of the creation. And so God gives every man a measure of faith and that's first. Then we decide what we put that faith in, we put that faith in Christ, then we're saved. And so it's amazing, and Jonathan, you said it, when you start off with total depravity and you believe that, then you have to build up all these other doctrines to be able to make that fit. Explain that. Right. So the the doctrine of total depravity, which if you've made it this far, then hopefully you've, you've seen that. If you haven't, then you need to go back first and, and listen to, to that one. Um, so all of this makes sense. But the doctrine of total depravity, first, we we believe in that. We believe that we are depraved, that we, we have a sinful nature because of the fall of man. But they believe total inability, meaning because you are completely deprived of goodness, that you cannot respond. You cannot respond to the calling of God. So then you've put yourself in a predicament. We've got a problem. So then you must give an out so that somebody can get saved. So if we are completely unable, then you have to give a way in which somebody gets saved. And therefore, we have irresistible grace. But God, according to them, doesn't give it to everybody. He gives it to a few elect people that he chooses to overcome with, uh, with this irresistible grace. Now, I got a couple of quotes from R.C. Sproul, um, make sure we put this in, in context uh, for what, what they're saying. Before a person exercises saving faith, God must do something for them and in them. That's R.C. Sproul. Before a person exercises saving faith. Now, th- the way that statement is said, it makes it sound like faith is a work, and that's the big problem. When we exercise faith, if you want to put it like that, we haven't done any meritorious work. They want to say that if we put our faith in Christ rather than God giving us the faith, which by that verse you just read, he does give us the faith. He already did give us the faith, right? He gave it to everyone. It's just what did you do with that faith? But taking that faith, God has to then give 
each individual person this this irresistible grace to have in order for them to have that faith where they can then exercise it. He has to do something in them. Um, he says, uh, ir- irresistible grace is not what the phrase suggests, that it is incapable of being resisted. Indeed, we are capable of resisting God's grace, and we do resist God's grace. But the idea here is that in spite of our natural resistance to the grace of God, that God's grace is so powerful that it has the capacity to overcome our natural resistance to it. Now, put it in that those words to make it more palatable, um, it still is overcoming our natural resistance, meaning... I know you don't want to say that somebody is drug kicking and screaming, but they do admit that we can resist it and then also admit that God's grace is overpowering our resistance, but still don't want to admit that God is saving people against their will. It's very contradictory. And if you want to like it, read it, listen to what they say, it sounds good. It's like, oh, those are nice words. But then put them beside each other, compare it and go, something doesn't line up here. Yeah, it is amazing. The last um, lesson we talked about, we talked about this um, um, doctrine in search of a verse. And it almost feels like the same way with this. They're trying so hard with this theological system that they've set up. And we, Bible-believing Christians, have shot so many holes through it uh, in the years. They've got to change it now. This irresistible grace, that's the word. That's the tulip. That's what they believe. And this irresistible grace comes upon them and they're not going to be able to resist it, and they're going to get saved. But yet we go into the Bible and go, this person resisted, this person resisted, this person resisted, this person resisted. Oh, okay. Oh, it's effectual, uh, Grace, now. It, it will have the effect, and they will eventually um, you know, give in to this grace of God. But if they're giving into it, then it's still irresistible because now they, don't, can't, they can't resist. So it still gets into that. And so, Jonathan, how many, how many examples in the Bible do we have of people that resisted it Right, so uh, I'll read this. In order to prove, uh, this is kind of my, my thinking, okay, if I want to make a point, right? Because we're just trying to uh, have understanding. We're just trying to understand the Bible and what it, what it says. So if we have to make biblical arguments within the Bible and then logical arguments, this plus this must mean this. Um, in order to prove to a Calvinist that irresistible grace is incorrect, we must show them an example of one of the elect that resisted the Holy Spirit's saving grace unto the point of death. The problem with this is that any example of someone that resisted the Holy Spirit unto death will simply be chalked up to, he must not have been the elect. Because if he were elect, then he could not have resisted the Holy Spirit conviction. Example, Paul resisted the Holy Spirit, but eventually gave in because he was one of the elect. So there's a quandary. I can show you example, example, example. They resisted, they resisted, and they go, no, 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 we agree. They can resist, but just not eventually. Like eventually, if they're elect, then it will overcome their resistance. Okay, what about the person here then, and that says to Paul, he says, thou almost persuadest me to be a Christian. Well, he must not have been elect, otherwise it would have overcome him. Okay, so Jonathan, um, this last lesson we talked about, um, it's even called a doctrine in search of a text. I almost feel the same way with this. What is their proof text? Where do they get this irresistible or effectual grace from that that 
works on you first, and then you're able to be be saved. Where do you where do they get that? Right. So, uh, likewise with with all of these doctrines, they're each very closely tied into another because that's how they support all of this. Um, so we'll go to the passage that we were at uh, in the first one, John six, and. 637 is where we're going to go, but I'm going to start uh, a few verses first and, and give kind of where they're coming from. Uh, in verse 32, Then Jesus said to them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he that cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then Jesus said unto him, then, excuse me, Then they said unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I say unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not. And, and remember that we'll go back to the verse 36 here in a second. But uh, verse 37, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. So this is where they say, see, look, God first worked a work in them and then gave them to Jesus and he saved them with his, his blood. Um, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. The thing is, what is being, who is Jesus talking to here? He's talking to Jews. He's talking to people that have heard about the Messiah coming, and he's proving that he is him. And so he, all through the New Testament, he, he says, I am the I am. I, I am the one that Moses talked about over and over. And he says, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. He's basically saying this. The people that believe that the Messiah is coming as a payment for their sin, those are the ones given by the Father. The, the law was a schoolmaster, and they believed. And so God is giving those in that sense. And those that believe, all, they, they believe in the Messiah coming. When Jesus comes, he says, and he that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Jesus is here, and those, they already believe in the prophets. And you say, well, why do you think that verse 37 is saying, is talking about the ones that believe in what the Old Testament says? Well, go down to verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. The ones that God gave to the Son are the ones that learned of the Father. When he is saying, the ones that the fa- all that the Father giveth me shall come to me, he's saying the ones that believed in what the Old Testament said rather than the Pharisees and the rulers that were trusting in their works. Those ones aren't of the Father because they're not believing what the Father said. So it's he's just saying, listen, the ones that believe in the Old Testament and what the Father has told you, God has given them to me, and I am the I am. Um, there are so many people like that in the Bible. I know you got a couple of Bible verse illustrations, but even many of the disciples, I mean, they were waiting for Messiah. Um, they were disciples of John the Baptist already before Jesus called them. 
And so they were looking for the Messiah. They believed the scriptures were there, uh, and now he is. And there's so many people like that. So go ahead. Right. In verse 38, for I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. In verse 39, and this is the will of a father which hath sent me, that all of which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise them up in the last day. So if, if you still look at this verse, and it's like, oh, God's given these to, to Jesus, and we're not going to lose any, he's not going to lose any because this is irresistible grace coming on them. God's giving them, and he's not going to lose any. Well, that's not what it's saying. It's saying the ones that have been taught from the law and believe in that, they're not going to lose faith because they're going to believe in me and accept me. And verse 40, and this is the will of him that sent me, that every one that seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up in the last day. Now, the difference between verse 40 and verse 36, verse 36 says, but I said unto you that ye have seen me and believe not. And verse 40, it says, everyone that seeth the Son and believeth on him. God came unto them all, all of the Jews, but some, even seeing him, didn't believe. Why didn't they believe? Because they weren't following the prophecy. We have Jews today that are still rejecting the prophecy. Right. And they're, because they're not of the Father. Uh, you've seen pictures of, of Jews that, that are still adhering so closely to the Old Testament and thinking that's going to get them to heaven. And they have most of their hair cut, but then right here they have two little curls that come down. You say, well, why do you do that? That kind of looks weird. Well, because in the Old Testament, it says not to mar the corners of your head. So right there, they have two little curls of hair coming down. They won't cut that. They're so, trying so hard to adhere to something that is not meritorious of salvation. And that's what he's saying here. If you believe what the Father said, that it's by grace through faith and that I'm coming, that, that the Messiah is coming and I am him, then those are the ones given of the Father. That's what this whole passage is talking about. And I, I feel like it is, it is clearly shown in verse 45 because it's like, well, I think that's a stretch for you to say that the ones that are given of the Father. But it ties in so well when you read verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught of God. Every man that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. I think this passage is beautiful, and when yeah. you understand it like that, it makes so much sense. It's amazing how many people use this passage here, wrongly understanding it to become Calvinist, um, if they understood the context and the Old Testament. So many times people have done a disservice to the Old Testament. Oh, that's Old Testament. And they discount everything when all the scripture, by the way, that's what Jesus had. That's what Paul had. That's what the apostles had, the Old Testament scripture. And that's what they preach from. And that's the foundation for all of our work. And so they come in, have verses like this and take off on it, not understanding the foundation of scripture, where it comes from. And if they did, like we did with Genesis, like we did with body, soul, and spirit. If you understand the foundation of it, then you don't get messed up in false doctrine because you understand the foundation from the word Old Testament and where we're at. Right. And so let's go over to um, Acts sixteen fourteen. They've got a passage where they want to show the order of what happened. So I, I'm showing you in John that that the order is not what they think. They think that, that this grace is coming upon them and then they're given to Jesus for him to save. And no, faith comes. Then after faith 
is regeneration, is when we are saved. Um, Acts 16, 14, a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. In this passage, they want to say that her heart was opened, that the Lord opened, then she got saved. She attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. Well, yes, the Lord opened her heart. Why did he open her heart? Remember that measure of faith we were talking about? She had a measure of faith that God had given her, as he does to every man. And it says, of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God. She worshipped God already. She already right. was looking for God. She already had faith. And so then God opened her heart, and she attended unto the things spoken of Paul. Uh, I want to show you another example to, to, to show you um, that, that order. You go it's to, amazing how they'll not go into that. They'll just say, oh, God opened their heart. See, that's what happened. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> she was already in this. She was already uh, worshiping God and in the word of God and believing on that. Now Jesus showed up, and of course they believe on him. Right. So um, we'll go to Acts 8, verse uh, 29. <clears throat> the, uh, um, this is Philip. And it's, the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him, and he heard him read the prophet Esaias, and said, Understandest what thou readest. Now this is the Ethiopian eunuch. He's reading the scripture. He's searching for God because he has faith and he's looking in the, even in the right place. He's putting that faith in the right place. And he said, uh, Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Esaias and, sa and said, Understandest what thou readest. And he said, How can I except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before the shearer, so opened not his mouth. And it's what gives Jesus right here, and, and he doesn't understand. In this humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or of some other man. Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And they went on their way, and they came unto a certain water, and the eunuch said, Here is water, what doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. But what happened first in this? What happened first is the eunuch was reading. He was following the Bible, but he didn't understand it. So what did God do? The Spirit said unto Philip, go near and join thyself to his chariot. Amen. When someone starts looking for God, God will always give them the opportunity to accept him. And someone that's looking for God, when God gives them the opportunity, they may reject it. The, the eunuch there, he was looking. Philip came to him. The eunuch could have still rejected it. But he, he saw it and realized that Jesus would save him, and he believed and then was baptized. The order of this is not saving grace first. The order is 
he had faith. He put that faith into Christ and God made a way for him. The provisionism, he provided a way. He showed him then. So it's, it's just a, a, simple, a simple order. I want to go back to um, John. I know we were just there, but I want to go to John 3. Um, John 3, uh, talking to Nicodemus. Um, and th- this passage right here is used also for... Uh, irresistible grace. And in verse 5, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of spirit is spirit. Not that I say unto thee, ye must be born again. And so Nicodemus is having a hard time understanding the concept that when Adam sinned, the spirit died. The spirit now has to be reborn. But I, I turn to this passage because I want you to see when is the spirit reborn? When is it reborn? Because it has to be born again, and that's what Jesus is telling him. You must be born again. And it says in, in verse 8, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and hearest and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. So they like to take this verse, verse 8, and say, see, the Spirit goes and picks who it wants to give grace to and not. But that's not what this verse is saying. It's telling Nicodemus that, listen, you can't see the Spirit being born again. That's all he's trying to show him because Nicodemus is looking at this going, I don't understand. Can I enter a second time into the womb and be born? And he's like, no, listen, you, he, you hear the wind, but you can't see it, and you don't know where it's going. That's the way the Spirit works. When the Spirit is reborn, you can't see it. Only God can see it. This is not talking about the Spirit going somewhere on its own accord and saving or, or quickening someone's heart. It's people that are looking and putting their faith into God rather than a false idol or to an alligator or to the sun or to whatever it is, they're putting it into God, and then God brings the Spirit to them to show them the way even further. So I, I think this, this verse, I, I looked at it, I was like, I don't even understand where they're getting because that's not what it's talking about. It's not talking about the Spirit just moving on its own to, to do its own thing uh, and only select a few. It's selecting the people that are reaching out and saying, God, I need you. But according, and this is why it's so, to, so closely tied into total depravity or total inability. We believe in total depravity, but because of total depravity, According to Calvinism, you cannot, you don't need, there isn't even a desire inside you to look for God. We went over this already, but the tree in which they ate was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That is within each person inside their soul, the knowledge of both good and evil. You can see it. The, the Calvinists say that you, if you are not quickened, or, or given this irresistible grace, then you can't even respond. 
And, and I ask this, if you are not able to respond, then how, when the judgment seat of Christ comes, will you be responsible for your sin? You were never able to respond. Able to respond. Responsible. It's like, you never gave me the chance. So another verse where Jesus said, Matthew 23, 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings and ye would not. Not you could not, you would not. Jesus wanted to gather them together. They're resisting that. Hebrews 3, verse 7, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today, if you will hear this voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, in the day of temptation, in the wilderness. If they couldn't resist or this effectual grace is going to come upon them and make them decide to do that, then why would you, why would you have to tell them don't harden their heart? Um, and then um, about Paul and Acts 9, 7, and he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Here is God working on, um, on Paul, and Paul is kicking against the pricks. He's resisting it. Um, and again, Again, um, that's what it was called, irresistible grace. It's going to be a verse like that. Okay, it's not irresistible. It's effectual. But when you look at it, it still means the same thing. God's coming in and making them do what he says he wants them to do because he chose them. They didn't choose God. Um, and it's still just a mess. So there are some verses, there's a lot more, where people resist God when God is working on them. Um, this is not a Bible doctrine at all. So, Jonathan, what else uh, do you want to cover in this one? Any other uh, verses or text or anything that you feel like is important that people need to um, hear? Yeah, they they use a passage in, in John 1. John is used uh, a lot um, with little verses here or there, but I feel like so much is just left out. Like, do you pick one little verse of one little spot and they go, oh, see, this seems to be lining up with this doctrine that I have to put together. I have to have irresistible grace because that's I have to have a way to get saved because of t- total depravity. And so they, they use little excerpts from all over. Um, but in John 1, uh, it starts out um, in... Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. Now, if you've listened to our last one, we went through a bunch of different alls and stuff. But here's another all. It says that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light, that true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Hmm. Wow. That's uh, So this light, light of Christ that cometh, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came in, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. This right here, if it's irresistible grace, God, you've got the three-part trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Are they able to resist Jesus, but not able to resist the Holy Spirit? Like, which is, because he came unto his own, and his own received him not. They received him not. 
But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Now, up to that point, it doesn't sound anything Calvinist. Um, verse 13, they like to take it, which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. See, God, according to them, in his own will, picked the people. It's not of the will of man, but of God. It's just saying that it's not works, that you yeah. can't will yourself to heaven, that you didn't work yourself to heaven. You didn't, and, and again, Faith, putting faith in Christ is not a work. Realizing that you're a sinner is not a work. Realizing that I'm drowning doesn't make me not drowning. Realizing that I'm bad does not make me good. So you can't say that faith, put it, placing your faith in Christ is any sort of meritorious work. It right. doesn't merit you salvation. It is the grace that gives you salvation. And that grace happens when you put your faith in God. So verse 13, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man. You can't will yourself to heaven. You can't work yourself to heaven, but of God. God's the only way. It's shown over and over and over again. One of the things they want to do, and this is a, they call it a $3 word or uh, whatever, where um, they want to say that regeneration not only precedes faith, but regeneration is monergistic, mono meaning one. Um, and so that God is the only one that has anything to do with salvation. We don't accept it. We don't uh, reject it. It's God who who did all of it. He that hath begun a good work in you will perform it to the day of Jesus Christ. Absolutely, he began it. He loved us uh, before we loved him. Absolutely. But to be able to say there's nothing at all that we do, um, then there's no free will. There's no ability to accept it. Um, and it's only for those chosen. I love the verse you read in John um, John 1, 9. Um, that was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Here it is. <laughs> God gives all of us, every man, this faith. Okay. What do you do with that? Put it in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're saved. Um, amazing for that. So, um, I do want to make sure we mention because in, um, in John, um, eight, sorry, John six thirty seven. um, this is one of their big, um, I'm sorry, John six forty four. no man can come unto me except the father, which has sent me draw him and I'll raise him up at the last day. This is one of their biggest verses. If they have one for here's just for grace that God's drawing them, God's pulling them and big debate whether it's quote against his will or if it's, uh, they use a Greek and go into different words and things there. And they try to make a big deal out of this. And this is only God that's doing this. But again, in John uh, 12, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he would die. People want to say, oh no, the only ones that can come to God are the ones that draw him. And because of our preconceived idea of Calvinism, only some are chosen, then we automatically jump to that without going to John 12, that it says, if I be lifted up from the earth, signifying the cross, then I will draw all men unto me. And so people don't like that, but it's there. You cannot get just a few and you can't get the irresistible grace drawn because God said he's going to draw all men unto me, but 
all men aren't saved because all men do not accept Jesus Christ as their payment for sin. It's either works for themselves or they say they don't believe it. So I want to make sure we at least covered that. Uh, again, it's one of their big verses, but keep on reading and they're going to realize it's not saying what they think it's saying. So Jonathan, what else? Anything else we need to cover? Um, I know uh, they like to, when, when I saw this and I'm doing... Uh, the studying on on what they believe because I mean you, you truly want to just go okay if there's any validity to it then sure let let's if see it's what true, it is I want to believe it yes right right even if it was quote a hard saying and and they like to put it as as almost that we just can't accept it well, I don't accept it because I I don't think that's what it's saying um, and uh, it's it's almost meritorious to them that they have now accepted this hard saying. But they use the verse uh, in Ephesians 2, uh, 8 and 9, which we use and quote all the time to show people that you can't work yourself to heaven. You can't live a good life, go to church, be baptized, do all of these things in order to go to heaven. Um, so when I saw it, I was like, how are they using that? But it says, for by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And they want to say that you cannot have faith, otherwise you could boast in your faith. Well, the problem is, it says, so the, the, this is order, the order. First, grace is given, then faith. Well, the problem is, it says, for by grace are ye saved through faith. How do you get the grace? Through faith. It, it takes away any idea of that verse being Calvinistic. You have faith, then you get grace, and no man can boast of putting his faith into God. I mean, I don't, trusting in something that is foolproof doesn't, make me somehow have glory from it. I don't, I don't even understand how you could say that me having faith or putting that faith that God gave us, just like in, in John where it says, the light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. How much more clear could you be? I mean, sometimes I'm reading these verses and I'm like, man, they just want to say that all doesn't mean all. I wish there was some way it put it that they, they, they just can't refute it. That it, it says something even stronger than an absolute is all. But then it says a light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world, meaning every man that was born. And we're not going to boast of that faith. God gave every person that faith, and where they put it is whether or not they will go to heaven or not. It, and you won't boast. You won't boast of the faith. It, that's not a work. It's not a work to put your faith into Christ. It, uh, it, it really baffles me, and I have, I have a hard time understanding how that makes sense in, in their mind. Uh, I mentioned earlier that there was, there's no example that I can really give of someone that's elect that, that you can show, okay, they were elect, they were chosen, and then they resisted long enough and died. And so the grace is not irresistible because then they will always just say, then he wasn't truly elect. Um, but I want to point back to this passage that I've shown, I think twice before already, of the rich man that died and was in hell and 
looks to Abraham and, and says, asks him to, to have Lazarus dip his finger in water and touch it to his tongue. And he says, you can't do this. Um, there's a gulf between us. And then he says, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren that he may testify unto them, lest they also come to this place of torment. He wanted somebody to come back from the dead to speak to them. And Abraham said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. That is what John is saying too. They have Moses and the prophets. And those that believe in Moses and the prophets, what they said, they will then accept Jesus because they're of the Father already. And Abraham said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went up to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Meaning what? That you can persuade someone of the gospel if you show them the word, but if they resist the Bible, then someone can come from the dead and they're still not going to believe the Bible. It doesn't have to do with irresistible grace. This is an example of someone that realizes now, burning in hell, that he was trying to work for it, and he wants his family to be saved. And he said, persuade them. If they're not going to hear the prophets, then they're not going to hear. Uh, they're not going to hear someone that came from the dead. I hope that we've gone through this um, thoroughly to understand that Irresistible grace is the answer to something that's not there. Yes, we're totally deprived, but that does not mean totally enable. And because we're not totally enable, the total inability, then we don't need irresistible grace. That's not necessary. Irresistible grace is not necessary because God put a measure of faith inside every person. And we can put that faith in Christ, or we can put that faith in something else, and so many people have. And, and that's all it's up to. Thank you, and uh, we'll see you in the next one. Thank you for listening to the Fundamental Baptist Podcast. If you have any questions, you can email us at thefundamentalbaptistpodcast at gmail.com.